Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York, and we begin in Ukraine. We are awaiting the arrival of evacuees from the devastated city of Mariupol. These are civilians that have spent weeks trapped in the basement of the Avastol steel plant, which remains under relentless attack by Russian forces. More than 100 civilians are still sheltering inside that facility. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military says it killed five Russian soldiers as they attempted to attack the facility. Now, despite the danger, Ukrainian fighters hope to evacuate more civilians as soon as today. Mariupol's mayor says a convoy with some of the plant's evacuees is headed towards Ukraine-held territory. More on that just ahead. Now, a major shift in the war could be less than a week away. U.S. and other Western officials say Russian President Vladimir Putin may formally declare war on Ukraine as soon as May 9th. A declaration of war would allow Putin to fully mobilize Russian reserve forces. May 9th, known in Russia as Victory Day, commemorates the former Soviet Union's defeat of the Nazis back in 1945. And Germany is ready to agree an embargo on Russian oil. That, according to the German finance minister, it will be a huge step for a country that prior to the war got 35 percent of its oil and over half of its gas from Russia. Christian Lindner told me Germany would not be blackmailed by the Kremlin into paying for natural gas in rubles and that it's ready to take action. It uh, takes time to reduce the dependency. It was a mistake to be dependent uh, in uh, this way, but we are making progress. So in the end, we will be completely independent from Russia. And we've got much more from that exclusive interview coming up later on in the show. Now, in the last hour, the Elysee Palace says that French President Emmanuel Macron has spoken to President Putin. Officials say the call lasted for over two hours. We're awaiting more details on what specifically was discussed. Now, Nick Peyton Walsh joins us from Zaporizhia, where he's waiting for those evacuees from Mariupol. Nick, give us the latest. It's a minute-by-minute wait, I believe. Yeah, and I think those minutes may be smaller and smaller as we await the arrival here. We're told possibly at some point in the next hour we may see those first evacuees from Azovstal. Now, that has been a point of arrival that's been delayed repeatedly. It seems because of their delay at Russian-held checkpoints still in Russian territory. We've seen people arriving here uh, from Vasilyevka, which is actually the last Russian controlled town before they hit a no man's land. I was told about an hour ago uh, by one uh, UN official here that they thought the predominant part of the convoy from Azovstal had in fact left Russian territory and they may 
be very soon to arrive here. The Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Irina Verashuk, has just been giving a press conference behind here where she says, in fact, we're going, expecting to see about 106 people emerging from the Azovstal uh, factory arrive behind us here imminently. Now, there had been a thought by the United Nations and Red Cross that as that convoy moved, it might attract or get extra individuals from the areas around joining it and using that safe passage to secure their exit from Russian-held territory. Remember, while the focus is on these hundreds of people trapped inside Azovstal under intense bombardment that continued last night as Ukraine's forces there appear to have made a last stand as they're now encircled by Russia and increasingly finding their numbers reducing as civilians are indeed allowed out. Uh, Of course, outside of those Azovstal numbers, there are any of 100,000 civilians still trapped in Mariupol, possibly seeking a humanitarian corridor here. And so while we have over the past days, Julia, seen slowly people arriving here from Vasilinska from Mariupol as well. They've been having their own journey that's lasted a number of days. And so the reason why this Azovstal arrival is so important, as it is many hope, possibly some kind of omen for the days and weeks ahead. If the UN and Red Cross are able to get these Azovstal few out, that may establish a mechanism which could enable thousands more to follow in their footsteps. Urgent, frankly, because of the risk of disease, the current Russian occupation and the intense uh, bombardment of Mariupol. But at this stage, it seems the journey of those few Azovstal evacuees has been pretty torturous. They have, it seems, been asked to make quite a circuitous route. There have been images of some, it seems, uh, headed in an easterly direction out of Mariupol first. Uh, It's unclear, frankly, the route they took, and that's going to be a key question that we'll be asking those who arrive here. But this massively, heavily expected arrival, possibly imminent uh, in the hour ahead, Julia. Hugely anticipated, Nick, as you say, and we will come straight back to you if we get that arrival. So uh, we await with you. Nick Payton Walsh there. Thank you. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a war in all but name. Russia refers to the offensive as a special operation, but that could be about to change. Western officials believe President Putin may formally declare war on Ukraine next Monday, and that's May the 9th. CNN correspondent. Scott McLean joins us now from the city of Lviv. Scott, great to have you with us. I mean, for most of us, it's been war since the first day of the invasion. Explain the significance of what this declaration would mean. That date, of course, May the 9th, and and what the implications perhaps could be for the ongoing bombardment in the east. Sure. So, Julia, of course, May 8th actually is VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the day when the German um, surrender took effect, officially ending the war. Because of the time difference, that surrender actually took effect on May 9th. So this is a hugely symbolic day for Russia and back then the Soviet Union in their victory over the the Nazis uh, in Germany. And so that is why because the Russians have sort of framed this invasion of Ukraine as a denazification operation. That is why Western military sources think that uh, the Russians are keen to use this for its symbolic value and that President Putin may well announce something on that day, either announce a victory or, as you say, perhaps declare war or announce a significant escalation in this special military operation, as the Russians like to call it. 
Uh, the British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace uh, suggested that perhaps Putin was looking to sort of galvanize support for this war and maybe sign up some new reservists. A formal war declaration would also give Putin the chance to institute a formal draft and also uh, call up reservists. Now, Pope Francis, of all people, Julia, actually said in, a, in an interview with an Italian newspaper that he was told by the Hungarian prime minister, who was told by President Putin, that May 9th would mark the end of this operation. Obviously, Pope Francis is hoping that that's true. He's not real optimistic, but he said that perhaps that explains the recent troop surge in the eastern part of the country and the recent escalation in fighting that we have seen there. Pope Francis also, Julia, said that he would be happy. He has asked if he can go and visit and speak with Putin in Moscow to try to bring, to bring some message of peace, if it's helpful. Hmm. Or perhaps uh, end of operation and, and start of war, depending on your terminology, as, uh, as we've seen here. Um, we shall see. Scott, what more are you learning as well? Because I know you've been, uh, you've been investigating the so-called filtration process that, that Russia's been using on certain Ukrainians to decide where they go and, and how they go and, and whether they remain. What more can you tell us? Yeah, so this is the process that, according to the Mariupol mayor, is holding up the 100 or so civilians who are headed towards Zaporizhia because they're all having to go through this so-called filtration process to get out of Russian-held territory. We more commonly hear about this from people in Mariupol who were pushed either by choice or uh, by the simple fact that they didn't have any better options into Russian-held territory and many into Russia itself. And so um, I spoke with two people, for instance, a while back who had left Mariupol and gone into Russia. It was the only option that they had to find some safety. And they said that they spent two days at a filtration camp, as they call it, in a town east of Mariupol called Bezimene in Russian-held territory. It is there that they were registered formally. They were uh, fingerprinted and photographed there as well. They said that they were then taken to another checkpoint, another part of this filtration process closer to the border. And that is where it was really the men that had a big problem. They were questioned. It was very clear that the Russians were looking for any saboteurs or uh, anyone with ties to extremism. And then they got a similar treatment once they actually entered Russian territory as well and were, were staying at a, a state shelter there uh, temporarily. That is where they were questioned. The men were made to strip down. They were looking for any kind of uh, tattoos or markings that might associate them with extremist groups. Now, the Ukrainian president frames this filtration process very differently. He says that this is a place where Ukrainians are raped, tortured or killed. It is very difficult to know for sure because, of course, Julia, we are able to speak to the people who actually made it out of that filtration process. We don't know what happened to the people who were uh, forced to stay there. And that's the point. Scott, great work. Awful to hear, but it's a, a must that we do. Scott McLean, thank you. Now in Brussels, the EU is expected to finalise a sixth round of sanctions against Russia, including a possible oil embargo. In an exclusive interview, German Finance Minister Christian Lindner told me his country will support an oil ban. He said they're ready even as soon as today. Now we are ready. We have prepared ourselves uh, to be uh, less dependent on uh, Russian energy imports. It uh, takes time to reduce the dependency. It was a mistake to be dependent uh, in uh, this way, but we are making progress. 
we can uh, reduce the uh, imports, um, starting with coal, then oil. It will take uh, more time to be independent from Russian natural gas imports, but uh, we will continue. So in the end, we will be completely independent from Russia. But just to be clear, are you ready to announce an oil embargo or to agree to an oil embargo this week, as early as this week? Germany stands ready for new sanctions, including an oil embargo. But we are negotiating this decision with our European partners. We will make a decision together. And so at the moment, Germany stands ready but we uh, feel responsibility for all our European partners and we will make a decision together. Are you saying that there's going to have to be carve-outs, perhaps, for nations like Hungary who need more time? No, I don't want to um, be part of this uh, speculations I've read uh, in international uh, media. Uh, today, I can uh, assure you that uh, Germany um, is ready to reduce the oil imports. We know others at the moment um, are considering this question uh, carefully. Um, I remember the um, U.S. Minister of Finance, Janet Yellen, who suggested the Europeans to uh, make their decisions carefully, even when it comes uh, to oil. And so we are considering, but uh, talking about Germany, we are ready. Mm. You've moved very quickly. Uh, the economy minister said that Germany could end its dependence on Moscow oil within days. And I'm, I'm quoting, does Germany even need a phase-in period? for an oil embargo, or could you literally just say no more Russian oil? Yes, we uh, could now um, clearly say um, we don't need Russian oil uh, anymore. We have uh, been able to diversify our energy imports. And so uh, Germany don't need uh, Russian oil imports anymore, but we have to consider the effects on others mem other members of the U uh, European Union and we have to take into consideration the effects on the uh, prices on the world markets, um, um, of course. And so Germany stands ready. But we won't uh, make this uh, decision um, only on our own. More from the German finance minister for throughout the show, including how they're paying for Russian gas, their decision to provide heavy weaponry to Ukraine, and what the endgame for the war might look like. OK, for now, let me bring you up to speed with one other top story making headlines around the world. In the United States, stunned Americans are reacting to news that the Supreme Court could soon strike down Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that protects abortion rights nationwide. 
News outlet Politico leaked a Supreme Court draft that would overturn the law, a shocking breach of the court's secrecy, if nothing else. If this is real, it would be the most consequential abortion decision in decades. White House correspondent John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, great to have you with us. It's a 98-page draft. I believe it's still not been authenticated by CNN. And of course, it's possible that a justice, and it's five to four on this, could change their mind. But if this stands and is announced, it would fundamentally change abortion rights and it would hand it back to states to make a decision how this is handled. It would, Julia, and a significant number of states uh, would outlaw abortion. A significant number have already moved in that direction. Some have trigger laws that would say when, uh, if and when the Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, they have a law already in place to outlaw abortion. This uh, upends, uh, as you indicated, a right that's been um, uh, in existence for 50 years since Roe v. Wade. But it also upends American politics because uh, you have a a narrow majority of the country that uh, opposes an outright uh, abortion ban. And this is going to shake up the deck for the politics both of 2022 and of 2024 if, in fact, this ruling takes place. Uh, You can expect, uh, of course, uh, states that... Uh, are are in favor of abortion rights and are in control uh, by Democratic governors and legislatures, they will, uh, nothing will change there. They will um, uh, codify and and, uh, maintain the legal right to abortion. So it's not as if abortions will not take place, but it will be more difficult for people in states that, uh, particularly in the South and the Midwest and the Great Plains, uh, that decide to uh, take steps toward banning abortion, uh, people in those states are going to have to find other outlets, uh, perhaps less safe outlets, more difficult outlets. So a significant uh, impact on the American people and on American politics, Julia. Yes, profound implication for for millions of women across the country now and in the future. But your point about the politics is interesting. I guess my first question is, how does the White House handle this? And just month out from the midterm elections, is this something perhaps that that Democratic voters could harness and decide actually this is something that they feel strongly enough about to to get them to the polls. Yes. Uh, And one of the things uh, we we do expect to hear from the president uh, by a written statement, perhaps uh, speaking on camera as he's uh, preparing to travel to Alabama today to visit a uh, uh, facility that manufactures Javelin missiles that the United States is shipping uh, to Ukraine. Uh, But we've been locked into a situation for a number of months where President Biden has very low approval ratings. We've got high inflation uh, uh, within the United States, as you know, which is uh, a big concern to the American people. Uh, You've got uh, uh, still the lingering effects of COVID. Uh, You've got high uh, gas prices. You've got a whole range of uh, difficulties that are weighing down President Biden's approval ratings and uh, uh, depressing the outlook for Democrats in midterms. Presidents usually uh, have setbacks in midterms. Their parties lose a House seat. Democrats have very few to lose and maintain control. All of a sudden, this is an issue that has the potential to galvanize Democrats who've been dispirited by some of the gridlock in Washington, some of the problems that President Biden has faced. uh, And that could shake up the deck. It may not completely change the outlook for uh, the uh, November midterms, but it does add a significant element of electricity into that Democratic base that has the potential to have significant impacts both in the House and Senate races. Mm. And we await that statement from the White House in the interim. John Howard, great to have you with us. Thank you. you.
Okay, straight ahead. Reliance is a reality. Germany's finance minister tells me the country is dependent on Russian gas, but denies paying it on the Kremlin's terms. And Stolivoko wants you to raise a glass to Ukraine with a limited edition bottle, raising money to help support refugees. That's coming up. Welcome back. Reliance on Russian oil is one thing for Germany, but reliance on Russian gas is a greater challenge. Germany still gets 35% of its gas from Russia, though that was more than 50% before the war. Last week, Poland and Bulgaria had their gas supplies cut off by Russia after refusing to pay in rubles. Well, now Germany is being accused of allowing its energy companies to engage in backdoor ruble swaps that allow their payment in euros to be exchanged into rubles. I asked the German finance minister whether Berlin is paying for Russian gas on Putin's terms now and in the future. No, we uh, won't. Uh, Germany can't be uh, blackmailed. Uh, We know there is uh, a dependency on uh, natural gas from Russia. It's a reality. Uh, We need uh, time to reduce this uh, dependency. Um, And it's not only uh, a question of uh, um, uh, economic consequences, but uh, we have uh, to face that um, important industries would um, be forced to stop their production immediately. So it's a very serious uh, challenge for us to be uh, less dependent on Russia. But having said this, Germany can't be blackmailed. Contracts are contracts, and all these contracts are based uh, on payments in uh, dollar or euro. And so German contractors should pay in euro and uh, dollar. This is the um, um, situation of the contracts, and we um, should uh, not uh, change because uh, Putin uh, needs uh, ruble for his uh, war chest. So, so just to be clear, you've told German companies, German energy companies, do not pay or engage in any form of euro to ruble swaps, even in Russian bank accounts. They've been told they can't do that. What, they must not do that. What? Well, what uh, Russian banks uh, do on their own is not um, a matter of the German government. But our position is very clear. All contracts um, based on uh, payments in uh, euro and dollar. And, uh, and so we, we should not switch to ruble uh, only because um, uh, Putin uh, wants to uh, fund his war chest. That's not in the German interest. We know we are dependent on this energy imports. It's um, not a comfortable situation for us. We have to to um, face this situation and to change it um, as fast uh, as possible. But we are not willing to be blackmailed. And this is what we tell private sectors, private sector companies as well. So that means there's still a chance that German supplies coming from Russia are, are cut off, like Poland, like Bulgaria. How high is that risk in your mind if you're sticking to the contract terms, as you say? 
we make uh, responsible decisions. Um, in uh, my perspective, uh, there is a risk, but uh, we um, feel responsible um, even uh, in, in the perspective of such uh, a risk. Um, I don't think that uh, Putin will uh, stop the uh, gas supplies uh, for Germany only because uh, we are paying on the uh, base of contracts in uh, dollar and uh, euro. But from day to day, we are less dependent on Russian gas imports. And so um, for every situation we have to face, we are prepared, but uh, we are not willing to have such a situation um, a short term because the economic consequences would be serious. Could we talk about that? Because the economy minister talked about a structural break in the economy and, and some estimates emanating from German economists have said up to 238 billion euros worth of cost over two years to the German economy. Is that reasonable in your mind, that extent of, of damage? What might it look like? I have not uh, an, an assessment what the um, precise consequences would be. In my eyes, no one has an exact picture what the consequences uh, would be. It's not only the economic uh, cost of an um, energy import stop. Um, I think uh, more worrying uh, are the long-term consequences for certain industries in Germany. A complete stop of um, production uh, could uh, destroy um, um, plants, could destroy energies for long term. And uh, my concern is that in such a case, which differs from the pandemic, certain industries would not return to Germany. There would not be a rebuilding of these structures there would be a private sector investment in other parts of the world, but um, um, special um, um, industries uh, in chemistry, um, energy supply and others, they would probably leave uh, Germany uh, completely. And so we uh, have to do everything what we can do to um, secure the gas supply for the German private sector. My takeaway from this conversation, the number of times he admitted policy mistakes in the past and that this overall had been a lesson for Germany. And while for Ukraine, no energy embargo can come soon enough, Linda told me that the policy decisions of this magnitude simply take time. He said before this, it took his country two decades just to open an airport in Berlin. Yet today, they're revolutionizing their entire energy supply chain in less than one year.
Welcome back. We've just learned 106 people evacuated from the Azovstal steel plant will soon be arriving in relative safety. They're due to arrive in Zaporizhia. That's according to Ukraine's deputy prime minister. But those evacuees, of course, the luckiest ones. Many more are still trapped in that steel plant under Russian fire for several weeks. Meanwhile, Russian Western officials believe Russian President Putin could formally declare war on Ukraine as soon as May the 9th, the day Russia commemorates its World War II win against Nazi Germany. And a physical form of resistance. Stolly Group has launched a limited edition Stolly vodka bottle to raise money for Ukraine. The aim to raise $1 million for the World Central Kitchen, an organization helping feed Ukraine's refugees. And it's not the first time they've chosen to act. Stolly Group, which owns Stolichnaya Vodka, changed the drink's name to Just Stolly after Russia invaded Ukraine. Although founded in Russia, the company moved production to Latvia back in 2000. Stolly quickly condemned Russia's attack, saying it has, long, it has a long history of fighting the Russian regime. Joining us now is Damien McKinney, CEO of Stolly Group. Damien, great to have you on the show once again. The money, the $1 million that you hope to raise is vitally important, but I do think it's, it's bigger than this. It, it's about doing something in a moment where many of us feel a long way away and unable to do something to help. Julia, thank you. Nice to see you again. Um, yeah, look, it is about action. It's very easy, I suppose, to, to do quick fixes. And I don't believe ours was a quick fix at the beginning. We were very clear. And I said, I think I, I think I said at the time this was very personal. Um, the question is, what next? Um, and I, I think and if, you know, you probably I'm not sure if you can see it, but we have this beautiful bottle here. Um, and our view was we've got two, two different angles on this one. One is. And as I was listening to your, your commentary around um, the possible declaration of war, the question is, what are we doing to stand by Ukraine? And more, more importantly as well, beyond the colours of Ukraine, but also there's this, this, this dove, because it is also about really reinforcing that it's about freedom and peace at the end of the day. And none of us can accept watching uh, refugees and the sort of humanitarian atrocities that are going on at the moment. So we really want to ensure that this stays front and centre in everybody's mind. Um, I think there's a second piece in, in this, Julia, which is, uh, again, the great work that when, um, World Central Kitchen is doing. Um, and we as a, as a team came together. And again, the lovely thing is it's very organic from all the team around the world and said, what can we do to further support them? Hence the million dollars. Um, and when you look at the sort of statistics uh, emerging, they are producing over 300,000 meals a day uh, across, I think it's something like 2,400 locations um, and using for over 400 different restaurateur supply organizations. So, so being able to work in partnership with them to really make a difference on the ground for, for us again is, is a real sense of of action i think there's a final piece to all of this this story is i really think it's a moment of reflection i hope for all of us the, the one thing that i've i give credit to our consumers they are intelligent thoughtful um, people who i'm sure not only watching this but are clearly looking at brands and are saying you know, in every shape or form, you know, I want these to be brands that I, I can, obviously there's a great experience, et cetera, and they're lovely, but can I really trust them? 
Uh, and I think it's more than just how they're produced. It's what the organization stands for. And, and I believe and we believe in Stolly that this is a moment where we want to continue to stand tall and provide the appropriate leadership that says, let's keep Ukraine very much center of, of mind and importantly, continue to drive this sense of peace and freedom around the world. Yeah, a representation of peace. We're familiar with World Central Kitchen on this show. Nate Mook has been on talking about their work. They're brilliant and they're incredibly brave. And some of their workers were injured recently as well. So um, I can't say more than you have on that. Uh, our support fully behind them as well. Um, what about for your Ukrainian employees as well? Because as you said, the c- consumers are smart. They, they recognize a brand. They also want to be invested in something that is providing some support and solidarity. But what about for your Ukrainian workers as well. How do they view this bottle and the stance? No, that's, I mean, yeah, they're very proud of it. It is It is a beautiful symbol of resistance, as it's being referred to. You know, jokingly, one of our, our Ukrainian employees said, you know, this has got to be Putin's worst nightmare to see Stolly uh, with the Ukrainian colours. Um, but so so they, they feel that, that uh, very strongly that we're standing for the right the right cause. I think, secondly, from our point of view, we continue to support them. Um, We've recruited a number of people over the last few weeks. Uh, By the way, this is not just charity. They are extraordinarily capable people um, from those markets as well. So is it wonderful that you could help and have these amazing people? And it's not just the employees. What we've been doing is, I think I mentioned in the last time we talked, um, of actually putting their, their, moving them to Latvia and making sure the families are well set up. That's going really well. And I think I mentioned also that um, we had one of our team whose mother was very ill. Uh, we moved yeah. her to Luxembourg, a Luxembourg hotel, uh, not a hotel, hospital rather, the Luxembourg hospital for free, uh, lent into the challenge as well and uh, done some amazing work. And she's now uh, hopefully in recuperation and, and all, you know, hopefully it'll be a very positive story. Fingers crossed. You were also writing to one of your employees who'd become a soldier as well. And you were talking to us about your experiences and, and the loneliness of that. How's he doing, too? Because I've, I've often thought about him. Yeah, thank you for that. No, the first thing is he's he's safe and well. Um, but uh, I suppose it's two, two points. One is, I, you know, I continue to. I wrote to him last night. I spoke to his wife today. Um, I think the key is that he knows we're there. Because however much we think things may or may not be improving, those dark hours are still very much upon them. And, and when you make the comment that you did, that the you know, possible declaration of war, there are still some very dark moments ahead. Uh, I think there's a second casualty in all of this and therefore person we need to look after actually is the, is the spouses, is the partners. Um, and it was interesting talking to her this morning because the pressure is really telling there as well. They've been separated for a, a quite a long period of time. She's got a beautiful son uh, in this particular case. Um, and it's actually making sure she's OK. Yeah, our hearts are with all of them. And yes, their stories is as resonant and relevant as as those that are fighting, too. It's all a form of fighting, I think. Um when you were on last time as well, we talked about the decisions that you'd made with your supply chain, that you'd moved your ethanol purchases to Slovakia. That was that was costing more money. Um, 
the sort of challenge that that represented for some of the, the Russian farmers and the suppliers and the, and the distributors. I just wanted to hear about more broadly about the, the sort of the business challenges that you faced and, and the pricing pressures as well, because there are there are many spheres to this beyond the human cost that, that obviously is very, very close fit for your company and for your people too. No, thank you, Juliet. Look, I, I think we're all, I think everybody's facing inflation and uh, of one kind or another driven by energy, etc. Uh, we, we have a particular, and we're all facing those and we're all having to manage costs as, as best we can. Um, I, I think in the particular, however, uh, as I, you know, we looked at very much how could we not just not just deal with with the, the the Russia piece, but but actually we had a lot of employees, as you rightly said, in Ukraine where we closed down factories. The good news is we are reopening them. So wherever we can, we are reopening the factories um, and indeed getting people back to work and getting the system up and running. Um, so so whatever we can do to support them to do that, that I think actually has almost become a top priority because that's important for the sort of self-esteem, let alone from a, a sort of market economy perspective. Um, beyond that, we'll continue to work with uh, the markets like Slovakia and Poland, et cetera, to, to take up the slack when it comes to production. Um, beyond that, we are, like I said, everybody's managing inflation, um, but actually we're feeling very confident now that um, having sort of adapted to the situation, uh, even more so that Ukraine's coming back online, um, that we've got a very good future ahead. And, and are you finding workers where you're reopening the, the factories there? Because obviously some of the men are fighting, there's other responsibilities and people have left. Are you managing to find people to work there and, and bringing old employees back or, or hiring new or both? Um, both is, yeah, is a short actually it's a great one look it's 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 a balancing act um but as the as the battle sort of moves away um those quite a lot of as you know sort of territorial type soldiers are able to double hat and go back to work so and, and a lot of women who are leaning in and also working so it's a it's a it's a and i didn't mean that in a pejorative sense you know it, it's a kind of it's a complete team effort here and as one partner whether a, a male or, 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 or so a man or woman is fighting the man or woman who stayed behind or is doing something else is also leaning in to pick up some of these other tasks including the work in the factories damien great to have you with us thank you so much for uh, for your insights again and we'll chat again soon damien mckinney Hello. the ceo of stolly group thank you so much for that now to a story that we have been following all morning i do have good news on it. We are seeing the bus arrivals. I'm talking about the evacuees from the Azostov steel plant in Mariupol. We have been waiting all morning to see some of these evacuees. We mentioned that the deputy prime minister had suggested that 106 evacuees were on buses making their way to Zaporizhia. It looks like we are now seeing those buses arriving and that is the shot that you are seeing now. So already people coming off those buses, being welcomed, I'm sure, to huge, huge relief after weeks of being stranded in that Mariel steel plant. We are going to provide all the details, obviously the first conversations of simply what those people have been through. But now they have arrived in Zaporizhia to relative safety and a welcome there. Much more on this after the break. Stay with CNN. We've told you their stories for weeks now, hundreds of civilians hunkering down in the basement of a steel plant inside Mariupol. Well, now finally, just in recent days, some of them 
are fleeing to safely, safety, arriving just now in Zaporizhia, where CNN is on the ground. CNN's international security editor, Nick Payton Walsh, is there, uh, and I think trying to talk with some folks who have just arrived. Nick, what are you hearing from them? What you're seeing here, guys, what you're seeing here in front of our cameras are the first people to emerge from the buses here. Now, you may actually recognize this lady from the reports that we uh, put out last night. She emerged on video, in fact, in one of the videos taken of those who were lucky to get out from Mariupol and has just emerged here, was asked where she's going to go and said, look, I have nobody here. I don't know where to go now and has been in tears on a couple of occasions. This is the journey that they will all be making as they've endured that extraordinary escape from under Azovstal for where she has been for weeks and now they have to try and piece their lives back together again. You can see in the exhaustion of her face and you can see there just the head torch around her neck that she's clearly been living in the dark. I asked her just a moment ago, what's it like being in the sunlight? And she said, look, I'm actually having some difficulty seeing. And so these scenes are extraordinary because of the conditions people have endured over the past weeks just to get to this very point. Now, in the last 10 minutes, we've seen four, I think, buses arrive, possibly five. Uh, and they have, they have emerged talking of what they've seen. And so the issue now for the United Nations and for the Red Cross is to take people from these buses here, make sure that they are in comfort, that they understand the steps ahead of them. We understand there are about 100 or so individuals who've come off these buses here and will now move towards the tents in this direction. Now, the importance of this moment for these people is, of course, deeply personal because of the time they've spent underground enduring Russian bombardment. And I could see in that lady's bag she was carrying just the small amounts of medicine, the plastic cup, the toothbrush, the tissue paper that had been the things she was living off over the past weeks. And around here too there are more people emerging from these buses. Unfortunate crowd of media because Ukraine does want the world to know exactly what they have endured. And this is hoped to be the start that there may, using this mechanism, be yet more people to emerge from Mariupol in the weeks ahead, possibly thousands. But these scenes are full, fulfilling a lot of expectation and hope over the past days and a moment, I think, of final peace for those who've been trapped in Azovstal uh, for some cases, some uh, two months. Back to you. And we should always remind, Nick, that the reason they were taking refuge there was that Russian forces were leveling the city. It was the only safe place they could find. Civilians, the deliberate target of Russian attacks, as they have been so often in this war. Nick Peyton Walsh, thanks for bringing us some of their stories. Still ahead, another story we're following. A corrections officer is now accused of helping a murder suspect escape a jail in Alabama. The last video of the two and why officials are now warning the public. That's coming up. 
Welcome back. I want to take you straight back out to Zaporizhia where uh, Nick Payton Walsh is standing by. Nick, we were just hearing from you before the break, some emotional scenes there. Just talk us through what you're seeing right now. Well, you can see a young bridal joy of a family being reunited after weeks, possibly months apart. What is slightly off camera here, the head you can see, the woolly hat of a six-month old child boy, Sviatoslav. We know his name because he appeared on video of the first evacuees emerging from the Azovstal steel plant now. And there are, as you can see, a large number of journalists and aid workers trying to move his mother and him away. It's unclear who they were just reunited with, but clearly emotional scenes there. One of a number playing out as people come off these buses and speak of, in some cases, feeling for the, not the first, but for a rare time in the past months, sunlight on their face. We've seen a woman in her 70s emerge and carrying uh, a plastic bag of what she'd emerged from Azovstal in her hands, medicine, paper cups, tissue paper, and clearly in tears, deeply emotional, as she now begins to wonder what the next part of her journey is. They've endured the intense, fear of getting out of Azastal, crawling up the rubble into the daylight and now two days on these buses, five buses in total that have taken them out of Russian-held territory all the way through to here Zaporozhye, uh, Ukrainian-held territory. And so we're going to move back in this direction to show you the, the tent in which they're headed over here. Uh, evacuation welcome center for so many. We believe there are a hundred people on these buses from Azovstal and the significance here is that these are the first evacuations from that plant and using a mechanism engineered by the United Nations and Red Cross. It has taken a lot longer than many had hoped would be the case but the hope is that it can be reused again and again to get some of the thousands of people, as many as a hundred thousand people, trapped inside Mariupol, under Russian occupation, bombardments and the imminent and escalating threat of disease. But if you just pan in this direction over here, you can see this large number of people coming out now. They will be carrying with them stories of months spent in pitch black in basements under the intensely fortified Azovstal steel plants basement areas. Another family coming just to our side here, carrying a cat in their case. Dobre, Mokak, Adlichna. You can see those two raised thumbs. This is where everybody, of course, has dreamed of being for the past weeks. And now, as we saw in the face of one of the elderly ladies we were talking to just now, this sense of not not quite fear, but bewilderment, because she said, as she was asked, where are you going to go? She said, I, I don't know anybody here. I don't know anyone to talk to next. And so while there has been great fear and uh, panic in those dark quarters of the Azovstal steel plant now, there's, of course, a new rebuilding of their lives that people here are going to have to do slowly. But the Ukrainian government have set up a tent, buses, to look after them, to help them begin this new part of a journey slowly. And one by one, they're coming off the buses here, bringing stories of quite horrifying period of time spent underground, the intense, persistent bombardment from Russian forces. Back to you.
Thanks, Nick. The overwhelming resilience of these people on display there, and, and particularly the children. We will be back with you shortly. For now, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World is up next. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.